Welcome to the Robert J. Morgan Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you believe and cherish the Bible and to learn and love Christian history and hymnody. I'm producer Joshua Rowe, introducing your host, Robert J. Morgan. Rob has written dozens of books with titles like The Red Sea Rules, 100 Bible Verses Everyone Should Know by Heart, and Then Sings My Soul. His newest book, 100 Bible Verses That Made America, is a biblical tour through American history and has just been released. Visit robertjmorgan.com for more details and for free downloads related to this resource, or order from your favorite online retailer. Now here's your host, Robert J. Morgan. I have two books that I'd like for you to check out. The first is called Then Sings My Soul. There are actually three volumes under this title, each one filled with great stories of our majestic hymns and sacred songs. The other book is my newest release, 100 Bible Verses That Made America. It's a biblical tour through all of the things that have made our nation what and who we are. Well, in this podcast, I want to combine those subjects and talk about the favorite hymns of our American presidents. Two major works have been done on this. The first is a small, out-of-print book published in 1933 by John Benjamin Merrill, entitled Our Presidents and Their Hymns. The other is a newer and larger book entitled Presidential Praise by Edward Spann and Michael E. Williams. I don't have time to cover every president, but let's pick a few that seem to be the most interesting. We'll start with a president who not only loved the great hymns, he wrote them. He is known as a great American hymn writer, and he actually converted all 150 installments of the Book of Psalms into hymns. John Quincy Adams President Adams is near the top of our most intriguing presidents. He was the son of an American founding father, an eyewitness to the Battle of Bunker Hill, an employee of the United States government from the age of 14, the son of a president, an ambassador to six different nations, a secretary of state, a senator, the sixth president of the United States, and the only ex-president to return to Congress where he spent his remaining days passionately arguing for the abolition of slavery. He was also a man devoted to his Bible, which he read every day and encouraged others to do the same, and he also ended every day by offering the Lord's Prayer as his own. His favorite hymn was one that he wrote, entitled, Send forth, O God, thy light and truth. The words say, Send forth, O God, thy light and truth, and let them lead me still, undaunted in the paths of right, up to thy holy hill. Well, John Quincy Adams was pushed out of the White House by his arch-rival, Andrew Jackson, who was a hard-brawling, hot-headed, two-fisted general from Nashville. Jackson was not a professing Christian during his military and political life, although his wife Rachel was a devout believer in the Lord Jesus. She died on the eve of their departure for the White House, and Jackson began his presidency as a grieving widower. After leaving the White House, Andrew Jackson returned to his home, the Hermitage, just a few miles from my home here in Tennessee, and he was aged and ill. During an 1838 Presbyterian revival meeting, he gave his life to the Lord Jesus and joined a nearby church. 
The change in him was enormous, and he spent hours reading and studying his Bible and commentaries and also hymn books. One day in September of 1843, a group of visitors came, and Jackson said to them, There is a beautiful hymn on the subject of the exceeding great and precious promises of God to his people. It was a favorite hymn of my dear wife until the day of her death, and it begins with the words, How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, I wish you would sing it now. That hymn, which is also one of my favorites, is based on 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, which talks about the exceedingly precious promises of God. And every verse of this hymn is devoted to various biblical promises. These promises became very precious to Jackson, and he fell in love with every one of the verses of this hymn. Shortly before he died, his lips began to move, and someone leaned over to hear what he was whispering. From memory, he was reciting a verse of how firm a foundation. When through the deep waters I call thee to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not thee overflow, for I will be with thee thy troubles to bless and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. Those were among the final words of Andrew Jackson. How firm a foundation was also the favorite hymn, of President Theodore Roosevelt, and it was also a great favorite of Franklin Roosevelt, where it was sung at his funeral. One of our least known presidents was John Tyler. He was born in Virginia after the Revolutionary War, studied at the College of William and Mary, got his law degree, and entered politics. When William Henry Harrison ran for the presidency, John Tyler became his running mate. They were inaugurated in March of 1841. A month later, Harrison was dead from a fever, and John Tyler became the first vice president to assume the presidency upon the death of the man in office. Tyler was an Episcopalian, and he was a musician. He played the violin and other instruments, and he composed music for the poems of his wife, Julia. And it was Julia who established one of the most famous musical traditions of the White House, the playing of Hell to the Chief when the president appears at special occasions. There were 15 children in the Tyler family, and they formed a musical ensemble that became very popular. John Tyler's favorite hymn is still a favorite of many people today. It's by the British author Philip Dottridge. O happy day that fix my choice on thee, my Savior and my God. Well, may this glowing heart rejoice and tell his raptures all abroad. The 19th president, Rutherford B. Hayes of Ohio, was an outspoken Christian. He had been seriously wounded during the Civil War at the Battle of South Mountain, and he eventually rose to the rank of Major General in the Union Army. He was a Methodist and was inaugurated president in 1877. He and his wife, Lucy, were teetotalers. That is, they didn't use alcohol, and they allowed no alcohol in the White House. Lucy became known as Lemonade Lucy, and it was said that at the White House during their days, when people went to the receptions, the water flowed like wine. Well, some of the most coveted White House invitations were to the families. Sunday night dinners, and hymn-singing sessions. Hayes wrote in his diary on one Sunday night, 
hymn books were distributed, and with someone at the piano, one favorite hymn after another would be sung in one of the parlors. Sometimes congressmen, cabinet officials, and other dignitaries would be there, hymn books in their hands, joining their voices to sing songs like, Jesus, lover of my soul, tell me the old, old story, nearer my God to thee, and bless be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. The president's favorite hymn was, Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. President Hayes was succeeded in office by another outspoken Christian and the only president who was also an ordained minister, James A. Garfield, who was also from Ohio. Garfield had a devout praying mother, and it's her prayers that rescued him from going down the wrong path as a teenager, a story that I tell about in 100 Bible Verses That Made America. She lived to become the first mother of a president to stand near her son as he was sworn into office. Garfield's favorite hymn was a prayer to the Holy Spirit for guidance. The words said, Holy Spirit, Light divine, shine upon this heart of mine, chase the shades of night away, turn my darkness into day. Now let me tell you about William McKinley. Among our presidents, he was one of the most open and outspoken about his Christian faith. He grew up in a Methodist family, and his dad was forthright about his commitment to Christ. William's mother was active in the local church in Niles, Ohio, taking care of the buildings as if they were her own and doing, as someone said, everything except the preaching. She wanted her son William to enter the ministry, and it was not a far-fetched idea. He was naturally drawn to the Bible. In 1856, when William was a teenager, Reverend A.D. Morton, a Methodist preacher, came to town. He preached night after night, aiming his remarks especially at young people. William attended every service, and one evening he quietly arose and announced his intention of becoming a Christian. Morton later recalled that the boy said, I have not done my duty. I have sinned. I want to be a Christian, for I believe that religion is the best thing for our world. I give myself to the Savior who has done so much for me. A few evenings later, he gave his testimony, saying, I have found the pearl of great price, and I am happy. I love God. Well, throughout his life, McKinley was an ardent Bible student and a man of prayer. One friend said, I've been with him many times during all of his political campaigns. We have frequently attended political meetings and banquets and have often retired at a late hour, but I have never known him to go to his bed until he had read from his Bible and had knelt in prayer. First Lady Ida McKinley suffered nervous disorders brought on by the deaths of her mother and her two daughters and her brother who was murdered. Her migraines, weak immune system, and epilepsy disabled her, and she spent much of her time in a chair crocheting thousands of pairs of slippers for charities across the nation. Her husband's caregiving was the talk of Washington, and he went to great lengths to see that she could travel with him. On September 6 of 1901, she was strong enough to go with him to the Pan American Exposition in Buffalo. They arrived in the afternoon amid fanfare. 
Ida went to rest while the president was escorted to the vast Temple of Music where 20,000 people were waiting, hoping to shake his hands. About a hundred people did so before tragedy struck. A young man with reddish hair approached the president, offering his left hand instead of his right, which was wrapped in a handkerchief. The stranger gripped McKinley's hand in a vice, drew him forward, and the handkerchief fell away to reveal a derringer that pumped two bullets into the president's chest and abdomen. McKinley staggered back, exclaiming, May God forgive him! As guards tackled the assassin, the stunned president turned to a bodyguard near him and asked, Am I shot? Seeing the blood spreading across McKinley's shirt, the man replied, I fear you are, Mr. President. The president's secretary bent over to hear him whisper, My wife, be careful about her. Don't let her know. The Temple of Music erupted in a cacophony of screams. As news spread, the crowds wept in unrestrained grief. At a nearby hospital, doctors examining the president felt he would survive his wounds, and for several days the world waited in hushed prayer. McKinley also prayed. After the doctors and nurses tended his wounds every day, he would tell them, let us have prayer, and they would kneel around his bed and offer the Lord's Prayer in unison. Every time the president would regain consciousness, he would repeat the Lord's Prayer over and over. For a few days, the nation was optimistic about the president's recovery. But on September 13th, his condition deteriorated rapidly. At 8 o'clock on the evening of September 14, Mrs. McKinley was brought again to see her husband. He was too weak to speak to her, but later that evening he revived enough to whisper some words in her ear, which were never disclosed. She rose and looked at the doctor, saying through tears, I know that you will save him. I cannot let him go. The country cannot spare him. But they could not save him. Goodbye, all. Goodbye, he said. It is God's will. His way, not ours, be done. As he sank into unconsciousness, he uttered the words of his favorite hymn. They were his last words. Nearer, my God, to thee, nearer to thee. The hymn goes on to say, Even though it be a cross that raiseth me, still all my song shall be nearer, my God, to thee, nearer, my God, to thee, nearer to thee. Now let me tell you about a president that I remember, Dwight D. Eisenhower. The progress of his spiritual life is bound up with the ministry of evangelist Billy Graham. In 1951, Dr. Graham's friend, Sid Richardson, called him and asked him to contact General Eisenhower and encourage him to run for president. Graham didn't even know Eisenhower at the time, but he wrote to Richardson saying, The American people have come to the point where they want a man with honest integrity and spiritual power. I believe the general has it, and I hope you can persuade him to put his hat in the ring. Richardson sent that letter to Eisenhower in France, where he was serving as the commander of the supreme headquarters of the Allied powers in Europe. Eisenhower wrote to Billy Graham because of the letter, and when the evangelist was in Europe some time later, he met with the general. In July 1952, Eisenhower was nominated by the Republicans for the presidency. 
He asked for Graham's help in knowing how to add a religious note to some of his campaign speeches. Dr. Graham shared some scriptures with him, and the relationship between the two men developed. One day, Graham asked him, General, do you still respect the religious teachings of your father and mother? Yes, Eisenhower said, but he added softly, I have gotten a long way from them. Billy felt free to share the gospel with him and to give him a red leather edition of the Bible. After the election, the president-elect asked to meet with Billy again, this time in a New York hospital, wanting to know some Bible verses that he could use in the inauguration. As Billy Graham recalled in his book, Thin Sings My Soul, the general stepped to a window in the Commodore Hotel and looked out across the city as we talked. I think one of the reasons I was elected was to help lead this country spiritually, he said. We need a spiritual revival. Billy Graham said I told him that I could not agree more and suggested that he make one of his first official acts the proclamation of a national day of prayer. He said he would. Eisenhower's own spiritual pilgrimage had moved rapidly, Graham wrote. Prior to the inaugural ceremony at the Capitol, he arranged a worship service for his incoming administration. I was astounded as anybody else, though when at the conclusion of the inaugural address, he read a prayer that he had written himself for the occasion. When Eisenhower took the oath of office, his hand rested on one of the Bible verses that Graham had suggested, 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. Three years later, Billy was awakened on a Sunday night in Washington. It was Sid Richardson, his friend again, on the line. Billy, he said, I've had a hard time tracking you down. The president wants to see you and the White House can't locate you. I'll let them know where you are. The next morning, a car whisked Billy to the president's farm in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. Not knowing what to expect, Graham prayed for wisdom the whole way. He later wrote, That day in his little den... Eisenhower paced in front of his fireplace, and I sensed that the real reason for my visit would soon be made clear. Billy, do you believe in heaven? Eisenhower asked. Yes, sir, I do. Give me your reasons. Billy said, with my Bible open, I gave the president a guided tour through the scriptures that spoke of the future life. How can a person know that he's going to heaven? Eisenhower asked. Billy said, I explained the gospel to him all over again, as I had on previous occasions. I sensed he was reassured by that most misunderstood message that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone, and not by anything that we can do for ourselves. Well, after his two terms in office, Eisenhower retired to his farm in Gettysburg. His health deteriorated, and in 1968, he was admitted to Walter Reed Army Hospital in Washington, battling congestive heart failure. Once again, he called for his preacher. Dr. Graham recalled the meeting in his book, Just As I Am. He said, The details of our conversation were so intimate and sacred that I never hinted of them until after his death, and then I asked Mamie's permission to reveal them, which she gave willingly. He said, as my schedule, 20 minutes with him extended to 30, he asked the doctor and nurses to leave us. Propped up in pillows amidst intravenous tubes, he took my hand, looked into my eyes, and said, Billy, 
You've told me how to be sure my sins are forgiven and that I'm going to heaven. Would you tell me again? I took out my New Testament and read to him again the familiar gospel verses, the precious promises of God about eternal life, and then with my hand still in his, I prayed. Thank you, said the president. I am ready. Well, Dwight Eisenhower had a favorite hymn, and it's also one of my favorites and maybe one of yours. What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Well, there is one more hymn that I'd like to mention. One that more than any other has been the favorite hymn of presidents. This was John F. Kennedy's favorite hymn. Gerald Ford's favorite hymn. George H.W. Bush's favorite hymn. It was a beloved favorite, probably the favorite of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and of others it is called the Navy Hymn. It was sung at Franklin Roosevelt's funeral, and it was played by the Navy Band in 1963 as John Kennedy's coffin was carried up the steps of the United States Capitol. Though this hymn has a British origin, the words are woven into American history as a prayer for the members of our armed forces, the Navy, but also the other branches. Through the years, in fact, verses have been added to apply to every division of our military forces. It's the Navy hymn, the words which say, Eternal Father, strong to save, whose arm hath bound the restless wave, who bits the mighty ocean deep, its own appointed limits keep. O hear us when we cry to thee for those in peril on the sea. O guard and guide the men who fly through the great spaces of the sky, be with them always in the air, in darkening storms or sunlight fair. O hear us when we lift our prayer for those in peril in the air. Eternal Father, grant, we pray, to all the Marines, both night and day, the courage, honor, strength, and skill, their land to serve, thy law fulfill. Be thou their shield forevermore, for every peril to the core. Eternal Father, Lord of hosts, watch o'er the men who guard our coast. Protect them from the raging seas and give them light and life and peace. Grant them from thy great throne above, thy shield and shelter of thy love. I'm glad you've tuned into this podcast. It was produced by Joshua Rowe and Clearly Media, edited by Elijah Rowe, music by Jordan Davis. For more information and resources, and for links to my books about the hymns and about American history, visit my website at robertjmorgan.com. This is Robert J. Morgan. Thank you for listening.